Battles Point. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. So today, oh, first, kids, you can be released. But as you make your way out, you're going to go out these side doors. Mr. Steve Bauman is right there. He will show you the way. So as you make your way uh, there. So for the rest of us, we are finishing up our series in a, a fight for joy. Uh, this week. And next week, we're going to be doing a short five-week series that I'm entitling, Are We There Yet? Now, after this series, we're going to be back in the Gospel of Mark through the rest of the fall. But I I don't know if you've ever said this, like as a child, right, yourself, or if you've had kids in the back of the car crying out, like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? How much longer Till we get there, the, the waiting, the, the longing, the unknown, whether you know where you're going to end up or not, there's this anticipation, this impatience that's revealed in our heart. I think the same thing can happen in the church, right? Like at a certain point, we, we say like, are we there yet? Like where exactly are we going? We've been gathering Sunday after Sunday, but where, where is all this leading? What is all of this for? Why? do we gather? How are we being called to become disciples who make disciples? And so in the the next five weeks, starting next week, I want to look at these two questions. I I want us to, to help answer the question, where are we going? How are we going to get there? I want to call us both together and to go. Since March of last year, for many, it's, it's been hard. Some are still joining online. That, that, that there's been a hesitancy. It can become easy. No longer gather together. God has a purpose for us. And I want to use this time to call us back together, 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 around a singular purpose in where God is leading us. What it means then to go. When we say and go and be the church, how are we going about becoming disciples who make disciples? What is it that we're attempting to achieve as we gather here week after week? That it's more than just this gathering. Who we're called to be as the body of Christ is what we will be talking through in the coming five weeks. But today, we're finishing our series, A Fight for Joy. We've been looking at what it looks like to walk in victory over the patterns of sin. We've been looking at the various ways that that sin can trip us up in which in in many respects we're like a spiritual orphan that's run away from home, living on the streets in despair, longing for safety, longing for a sense of belonging, of empowerment, of, of purpose. But we seek these things in the gutters of the street. And we lap in the dirt when the invitation to come home a father beckoning us home to find our joy and satisfaction in him. And yet we've looked over these past weeks in all the ways we drink from empty cisterns. We drink from pride, thinking we can find it in ourselves. We drink from envy that only if I had their life, if only I had their blessing, then I would be happy. We drink from anger and laziness and lust and greed. Today, we're looking at the sin of gluttony. 
in the way that we can look to food for our joy and satisfaction rather than looking to God. I've been using this passage in Jeremiah chapter 2 where it says, for my people have committed two evils. First, they've forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. God is the fountain of living waters, but we've forsaken that. The second evil is then we've looked then out cisterns for ourselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I want us to feel the spiritual thirst and longing that we have. And God is saying, he is the fountain of life. Why would we look to anything else? Today specifically, why would we look to food to be our comfort and our joy when God has given us himself. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, I pray that you would lead and guide us this morning. Lord, as we walk through your word, that you would give us a self-awareness, a sense of conviction of how we turn to this gift that you've given us of food, and yet we use it to comfort our emotions quenching our hunger for you. Lord, would you reveal how we have misused food? Lord, create and cultivate in our hearts a hunger and a thirst for these living waters that will truly satisfy. And in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians three seventeen. And we kind of see this two opportunities. We can follow two ways. Uh, The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi saying, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk to the example you have in us. Here's one example. Those who fear God, who are walking in his ways, you can follow that example. Or there's also many of whom that, that I've warned you, I've told you, and now tell you, even in tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That They follow the cravings of their flesh, the, the cravings of their stomach, the appetites of their bodies. And it will lead in destruction. Proverbs 23, verse 19 through 21 says, Hear, my son, be wise, direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttons, gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them. That we see this warning to not walk in gluttony. But what does that even mean? All right, like, I think we have this idea of what gluttony is. Don't we, like, we think about it as just overeating. You eat too much food and you get fat and we call it gluttony. But if we do that, it, it, in all honesty, it becomes nothing more than spiritualized fat shaming, right? Can you honestly step on a scale and determine if your heart is filled with gluttony? Do you look at your body mass index and, and determine if you're a glutton or not? No. 
No more than you look at how much money you have in your bank account to determine if you have greed in your heart. Right? The rich and poor alike can suffer from greed. In the same way, whether you're overweight or underweight, you can suffer from gluttony. I want to dismantle this idea, this preconceived idea that gluttony simply means you eat too much food and you're overweight. It's much deeper in our hearts. And so what I want to do is first look at what is God's purpose for food. We did the same thing two weeks ago when it came to to lust and sex and sexuality. How did God intend this to be used? Because when we understand God's purpose, then we can better understand how sin has distorted this gift from God and, and used it wrongly. See, we see in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, that that God created food and he called it good. That food isn't the problem when we consider the sin of gluttony. Like, have you ever thought of this? God could have caused our bodies to be fueled however he wanted. Sunshine, rain, Whatever it is, it didn't have to be food. God created food. He called it good and he created it for us. This is what it says in Genesis chapter one. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Like we think of food as good or bad. We think, oh, I've had a really hard day. I'm going to treat myself with this bad food. We, we have a very unhealthy view of food. And it begins by saying food has been created by God and it's good. And and here's the amazing thing. Here's what I want us to see about God. He didn't just create food for fuel for our bodies. He created it for joy. Think of that. He he didn't just create it like we have to eat food to, to, to fuel our bodies. He gave us food. The joy of cultivating the earth to grow food. The joy of consuming food. The joy from the the strength that the food gives to our body. This is what it says in Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen a man's heart. God created food, not just as fuel for our bodies, but for our joy. And not just joy in isolation, but joy in relationship with others. Like, we see this throughout Scripture. Acts chapter 2, verse, verse 46, and day by day, attending the, the temples together, that the church would gather, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad in generous hearts. Like throughout scripture, we see people gathering around a table for a meal in, in fellowship and in, in hospitality. Every month we've been doing a luncheon after church, including next week, we're going to have another luncheon. 
Let me ask you this. For those who have participated in those luncheons, do you feel closer to the people that you worship next to because you've sat across from them and shared a meal? Think about that for a moment. If food was only fuel for the bodies, it wouldn't matter where you eat. Go home, have lunch by yourself. But sitting across the table, sharing a moment with someone, sharing a meal around a table now brings us closer together in relationship. And I believe that this was part of God's design. We see it in the very beginning all the way through the end of Scripture. In Revelation 19, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to Him. For the time has come, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And His bride has prepared herself. The church, the bride of Christ. There will be a banquet feast in heaven when Christ returns. Think about this and and how it's described in in Isaiah 25, how God sees this shared meal among the family of God. In, In Isaiah 25, in Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well aged wine and choice meat. They There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and all mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. Then the people rejoice in Christ. We have this promise of life The shadow of death has been vanquished by the light and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there will be this meal. But here's the thing. All the nations are gathered around this meal. But they're not talking about this well-aged wine. They're not talking about the choice meat. Instead, what it continues in verse 9 is it says, In that day, people will proclaim, This is our God. We have trusted in Him And he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we have trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. Do you see what's happening? There's this feast in heaven. There's this table that's being shared in all worship, in all glory, is to Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who is worthy. How then has sin corrupted our view of food? Gluttony makes food central. It wants the feast without the Savior. It, It wants to have our tears wiped away. It wants to fill our bellies with hope, with the wine and the choice meats without the Savior. Gluttony makes food central and seeks to satisfy the longings in our heart with food absent of the Savior. It makes the meal central rather than our Savior. And it happens in many different ways. Tim, John, uh, 
Mabray says this in his book, The Seven Deadly Sins and Spiritual Transformation. Gluttony is the sin of looking to food to satisfy the craving of our souls for security, a sense of well-being, comfort, control over our lives. Gluttony is a hunger for earthly things as a substitute for God himself. So what does it look like? If gluttony isn't then just overeating and then becoming overweight, if we have this beautiful picture of, of how God designed food for us, how then does sin corrupt this, this view, this purpose? Because we're talking about gluttony, I couldn't help but to like imagine a table with four plates on it, right? That, that there's four different types of of gluttony, if you will, that I, I want you to examine your own heart. See, this is the hard thing about preaching. All week long, I'm having to be studying this and eating. And I realize, I think I have like messed up all of these. Like it is so hard to stand up here and preach and be like, I know how I crave. Like you can talk to me afterwards about all of these. This, and it is what we're, we're most used to, excessive Eating in excess, a, a lack of self-control, demanding how much food can I have, right? It's not about the quality of food. You want the most food for your money. This plate would be overflowing. You want to have and consume as much as you can. Like we joke, don't we? Oh, I should have worn my pants with elastic. I joke that there's always room for ice cream because it melts and it just seeps in the cracks right? There's always room. Like, <laughs> like we talk about, like my wife and I, we've gone out on dates and, and there's sometimes like we're walking back to the car and it like, it hurts. We ate so much. I've eaten so much. Like there's almost a physical pain and we joke about it. And I wonder like the reality is sometimes we feel overworked feel unloved, the world can feel out of control. In eating, there's a physiological response that happens. I am not a doctor. I don't understand all the ways of the things that I've read this week. But there is a physiological response that happens that as we consume sugar and food, it brings a sense of calm to that inner turmoil. And, and we can try to satisfy ourselves. It, it, it's a disregard for God that he's going to provide another meal, right? Like this isn't the last time we're ever going to eat. We don't have to eat everything that's on the plate. There's times when we give ourselves to excess because our world feels out of control and, and, and we just want a little bit of comfort, a little bit of peace. But what we're really doing is looking to food to satisfy us when there's actually something much deeper that's hurting, that's broken. The same thing can be true of an impulsive eater. This demanding food right now, I need food right now. Like I think the classic example of this is in Genesis 25. Remember he had the, the, the brother Jacob 
Esau was the older brother. Jacob was the younger brother. Jacob was home making lentil soup. Esau had been out. He's hunting. He's outside. He comes back and he's famished. Hungry. Like he's going to die if he doesn't eat right now. And for a bowl of lentil soup, he exchanges his birthright as the older son. Because he can only think with his stomach. And so on impulse, he sells what is of immeasurable worth for a bowl of lentils, temporarily filling his belly. Now, it's easy for me to sit in judgment of somebody else, but then I think about myself. Like, that's the problem with preaching all of this. And, And when I make a pound cake from scratch and it's sitting on the counter, this magical thing happens. When I walk by it, a piece jumps into my mouth every time. (laughs) I don't know how it happens. Or like after community group, when we have like the snacks left over, I walk by and then it's in my mouth. I I don't even think about it. It's not like I consciously say, here, I'm going to eat this. It's just like, it's there, put it in my mouth. And, And I'm wondering like, what is this? Like there's a sense of complete lack of control. Like that's the impulsive eater. That's just, I don't know, like, if I sat down and said, what is it? Like, oh, I need sugar. Put it in my mouth. Without even thinking, without even considering. And I think the reality is that sometimes we use food to satisfy a physical craving without actually just stopping to think about the self-control that God is calling us to. Like, to have our bodies under control. The impulsive eater only focuses on the immediate gratification without consideration of the impulses. So which place setting are you going to sit at? The excessive? The, the impulsive? The sumptuous plate? Demanding only the best of foods? Right? Like, you, you don't want a Walmart ribeye. You want a Japanese A5 Wagyu ribeye, which I do. I might know this. It's $150 for a steak um, sort of thing. It's crazy. Like, if you're like, my taste buds are too sophisticated. Now, some of you might laugh and you're like, okay, that would never be me. My budget can't afford it, and I really don't care about steaks that much. But maybe you're like, oh, I only shop at... Publix, Whole Foods. Are there certain foods where it's just like, would you ever buy Dr. Thunder instead of Dr. Pepper? Like then, you know what I mean? Like we can, we can make fun of the Wagyu steak people, but then it's like, I'm not cheap. I'm not drinking that cheap soda. We can, what happens is we begin to look at only the richest foods and, and what The focus of it is, is that food becomes the driving thought behind everything. This is what I deserve. This is what I need. We comfort ourselves then with food. And we say only the best kinds of food. Or the dainty eater. The the, the person that it's only prepared kind of food. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his, his book, Screwtape Letters. It's 
with this screw tape letters, the premise of it is it's, it's two demons corresponding with one another about how to tempt Christians, how, how they work to, to undermine and, and, and to tempt people. And so it's one demon writing to another about how they trick this person who thought they obviously don't struggle with, with gluttony, writes this. Because the demons jeer and gloat, because they've exchanged this strategy of limiting gluttony to only excessive eating, to a strategy of only for delicacies. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She's always turning from what has been offered to her to say with the demure little sigh and a smile, oh, please, please. All I want is a cup of tea. Weak, but not too weak. And the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. The real value of the quiet, unobtrusive work which the devil has been doing for years on this old woman can be gauged by the way in which her belly dominates her whole life. The woman is in what may be called the all-I-want state of mind. Like, sometimes being overly picky can be a form of gluttony. It doesn't mean that you don't have likes and dislikes. But when all of a sudden your stomach is what's determining something, and it doesn't matter the impact it has on somebody else, it doesn't matter anything in relationship to anyone else, there's no sense of gratefulness, it's just all I want is this perfectly prepared piece of toast. The dainty eater only focuses on their own experience of eating or drinking and what's pleasurable to them, not taking into an account the impact it has on anyone else. Again, it is being led by our physical appetites. And this is why ultimately gluttony is a sin. It takes something that God has created for our good that was intended for a joy, and then it makes it ultimate. Like we, we see on here, if you see the, the four plates, the first two, the excessive impulsive eater, is how we eat. We eat in excess, we eat impulsively, and then the latter two focus on what we eat. The sumptuous eater, only the best foods, only the perfectly prepared foods. All of these can help us think through where are we being controlled by our stomachs rather than our spirit? Where are we looking for to comfort emotions that can feel out of control with food? We look to food to satisfy our soul rather than God. And it seems crazy. But I do it. Like if I'm going to tell on myself, I, I had to stay up late one night because of something I had to get done at a particular time, and I thought I was alone in the house. And my daughter is laughing because she took a picture of me that you will not see on the screen. 
where the way I did is I took the tub of ice cream and I put sprinkles all on the top and I got a spoon and I was going to be done once the sprinkles were gone. She comes down the stairs and sees me sitting in my office with this tub of ice cream, right? I offer, I eat my emotions. And this is part of of what gluttony is. That there's something better than ice cream with sprinkles. There's something better than the foods we look to. But how many people joke, ah, coffee in the morning, wine at night. We joke of all I really need is this food to, to comfort me. Are we eating our emotions? Do we avoid food? Because our brain is somehow telling us that, that it's, it's bad or it's going to make us fat and we have this misrepresentation of our bodies. And so then, then we run from food and we see it as bad when God has called it good. Uh, are, are you a foodie? Like we even have names for it now, don't we? We like such specific foods, such precisely prepared foods. But is that hindering hospitality? Is that hindering relationship with others? Is that hindering thankfulness in our hearts? <clears throat> Gluttony is a lack of self-control. It leads to laziness and it leads to ruin. So he- here's the incredible thing. How then do we respond? Like it is possible to eat to the glory of God. Have you ever thought of this? Like, and you could say, like, you're over-spiritualizing this now. Like, okay, that's just one step a little too far. But when we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it's this concluding thought. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Possible to sit down after this service, have lunch, and to eat lunch to the glory of God or to the glory of your belly. So which will it be? What does that even mean? I think it begins with thankfulness. Like in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says that they will say that it is wrong to be married or wrong to eat certain foods, but God created those foods to be eaten and to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. For we know it is made acceptable by the word of God with prayer. See, here's the thing I'm aware of. You sit down for a meal and you give thanks. You say grace. I don't know how it is for you, but so often that just becomes such a routine Is my heart even engaged? Have I even taken the time to consider what it's taken for this food to arrive on my plate? Have I really considered all the ways that God has been faithful so that I can sit down and have this meal? I would encourage you, even if it's just waiting five seconds longer when you pray, when you say grace over the meal, would you pause this week? 
and just allow your heart, is there a gratefulness, a thankfulness in everything bagel with cream cheese? Like, thank you, God. That's good. Right? Like, there's a way that you can just consume it as fuel to get on about your day without regard. Or there can just be a moment of reflection, a moment of pausing and saying, thank you. Thank you for for what you have given. That there is a thankfulness in in how we eat. There's a self-control in how much we eat, right? In in what we eat, of of not just being dictated by my stomach, but being mindful. I, I have to do this at times because there are certain foods that make me sleepy and there are certain foods that give me energy. So when I'm in the middle of sometimes sermon prep, the foods that make me sleepy are the ones I want to eat. The foods that are energizing. But there's a mindfulness. It's not just being led by our stomachs and following whatever it wills, but of self-control surrendered before God. I think another way that we glorify God in how we eat is in fellowship, is in hospitality, meals around the table, not just the TV. Like, we don't allow cell phones at our table. Because what do you see when you go out to a restaurant? Have you ever seen two people out on a date and they're both on their phones? Like, how is this? Like, They're all together. I've seen whole families around the table and every last person is on their phone. I believe this is a form of gluttony. It's just we're just here for the meal, eat the food and go on about the day, but this is a moment, a shared moment around the table for people to be in in fellowship and relationship with one another. I think for some, some families, you you may need to to take a step back and say, we're going to eat around the table, not around the TV. We're not going to eat at all different times. We're going to eat together. Maybe whatever that needs to look like, how do you slow down? It's more than self-control. It's examining, examining our hearts in relationship to God in one another. There are practices that God has given us. If you're like, man, I I know which place setting I would sit at around the, the gluttonous menu, if you will. There's practices that I believe God has given us to cultivate our hearts. The first is fasting. Like Jesus assumes it in Matthew 5. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. When you fast, it's almost an assumption, but it's not something we often talk about in the Christian church here in America. Fasting, intentionally denying our physical body in order to cultivate our spiritual hunger for God. See, it's a both end. It's denying our physical body. Maybe it means food in general. 
Maybe it means taking a step back and, and, and fasting for a day, several days. It may mean fasting certain foods, which I've had to do before, like coffee. I generally start my day with coffee, but then there's been times when if I don't have the coffee, I get the headache. You know what I mean? And then I'm like, oh no, my body needs the coffee. And I don't want my body to be under the control of some other substance. And so I'll take a week and I won't drink coffee so that my body isn't needing this, that I can enjoy it because I like coffee. But it's not like I have to have coffee. What do you need to fast from? What do you run to when you're sad? What food do you crave? Do you say, I just need this and then I'll be happy. It soothes the uncomfortable feelings you don't want to deal with. What would it look like to deny yourself those things? To discern what kind of control it actually has on you? Richard Foster says that fasting reveals the things that control us. See, it's fine and dandy to say, I don't need it until you don't have it. But it's more than just denying our physical appetites. It's also cultivating our spiritual appetite, our spiritual hunger for God. So instead of having the meal, it's not just I'm not going to eat. It's instead of the meal, I'm going to spend that time with God. I'm going to intentionally cultivate my heart and my hunger and my appetite for him. Maybe it's going to be through, through worship music. Maybe it's going to be through reading scripture out loud. Wh- whatever that looks like of, of praying, but using that time instead of going to the food, going to God. Fasting is a spiritual discipline to bring our bodies under control to not just give ourselves to whatever appetite we have in the moment. I also think one of the things that I want to encourage us in is hospitality. Food was meant for fellowship. It was meant for relationship. The amazing thing is, it's like 1 Peter 4, 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. For the church, be hospitable. In fact, it's even so much an expectation for the church that it's commanded of its elders. Elders, one of the qualifications, it's not only like all these other things a husband of one wife, be of above reproach, be hospitable. Hospitality is one of the qualifications of a leader. Think about that for a moment. One of God's purposes of food is fellowship. It's going to be our reality in eternity. And it's to be practiced here. Think about this. One day, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we will share a feast of nations with clear, well-aged wine and choice meats, and we will be singing the praises of Jesus together. And we have that opportunity here, now, to enjoy fellowship together. Church, after church is a great time, not just next week, like stay for the luncheon next week. 
But also, what does it look like after the service? You're going to go get lunch. You're going to go get lunch. What if we did that together? What if we were intentional? What if we opened up our homes and shared life together around a meal? You're going to eat anyway. This is part of God's design and purpose for food. It's not just about you. It's not just about the food. It's for joy of the heart. It's for the the joy of the body of Christ together. So I want to close in prayer, and then I want to talk about one final way as we share the, the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. That I just even in my own life, Lord, just the reality that you're concerned and you speak into even how and what we eat, Lord, revealing our, our hearts to lead us into deeper trust and thankfulness of you and deeper relationship with one another of something that can just seem so common as eating something than going about your day. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction in our hearts where needed, where we are looking to food, to be our joy and satisfaction. When we have you, Lord, let us find our joy and satisfaction in you and and let us then experience the joy of the gift of food that you've given us in its appropriateness, Lord. Would you bring conviction where needed? Would you lead us into deeper unity together as, as we share time together around the table, eating, laughing, talking, hearing one another's stories, Lord? Would you draw us closer to you and to one another around the table? And in Jesus' name, amen.